0: Happy New Year to all of you. I'm impressed that you're here. I know who didn't show up this morning, who was out late, but looking at you guys, you probably were in bed at nine. You look like that kind of crowd. If you have your Bibles, today we're going to summarize the book of Romans. I thought that would be a good way to start the new year. So particularly, we'll be in Romans 1, 17 and 12, 1 and 2. Romans 1, 17 and 12, 1 and 2. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, this is your inspired and errant word that we handle in Scripture today. And we ask, Father, that you would take your truths and allow our head and our heart to be transformed by your truth, that we might not just know what Scripture says, but we might do it. As James says, we do not wish only to hear the word, but to do the word. So we ask that would be reality for all of us. Father, guide what I say, guide what we hear. Transform us for our betterment in your great glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Charles Philip Arthur George. He was born in November of 1948 in London, England. He was born to Philip and Elizabeth. He was born seven pounds, six ounces. From the outside, he looked like a normal boy, but he really wasn't. In fact, his life was greatly changed when he was three years old and his grandfather died. His grandfather was King George VI making his mother Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning British monarch in history. Until this past September, she reigned for 70 years. A young Charles is three years old. We know he will not become king until he's 73, and now he's 74. But you can imagine how that changed his life. At age three, Charles became heir to the throne. What did Charles do to become heir to the throne? Nothing. He didn't do anything. He happened to be related to the queen mother. That's all he did. Nothing on his own. But you can imagine what happened at age three onward. Charles, you shouldn't be doing that. You are an heir to the throne. Charles, what are you doing? Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you are about to become? Don't you know your future, Charles? That had to be his life for 73 years. It had to be his life. Do you know Christ? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? That is your life, that is my life. We are heirs to the king, we are heirs of the kingdom. And because we are heirs of the king through faith in Jesus Christ, it has implications of what we do and don't do, where we go and don't go, what we listen to, what we see, what we won't see and where we won't listen. What did we do on our own to become heirs? Nothing. We believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He did it all. And yet, through faith in Christ, we become heirs not just of an earthly king, but the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And that ought to have implication on how you and I live. I wanna read, starting in Romans 12, verses one and two, and then in a moment, we'll go back to Romans one. Romans 12, one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, sisters, Christ followers. I appeal to you, therefore, Christ followers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For a moment, I want us to think of the entirety of the epistle to Romans, this magisterial letter that Paul penned under the inspiration of God. It starts with 11 chapters of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right thinking. Allow me to summarize it for us this morning. It starts with bad news, goes to good news. The bad news is we are sinners by the moment of conception, that's Romans 5:12. We are seminally in Adam, and when Adam ate the forbidden fruit and fell, when he rebelled against God, God knows full well, you, I, we would have rebelled, so Adam's sin is imputed to us. Not only are we sinners by birth, we are sinners by action, and as Jared said, too happily. We have done, we have said, we have thought, we have not done. Our attitudes have been wrong. We have rebelled against the Lord. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus saw us in the depth of our sin. From eternity past, the Father willed that his willing son, Jesus, fully God, would come down at what we celebrate at Christmas. And fully God would take on full humanity, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, a baby who grows in wisdom and stature, never sins. But he knows that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for our sin is to eternally be separated from God. And so he who knew no sin became sin for us. He went to the cross, our sin was placed on Christ. He became sin for us that through him, through faith in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's orthodoxy. It's right thinking. That's the first 11 chapters. The last five chapters are orthopraxy, right living. Because of what God has done for us, because through faith in Christ, through nothing that we do. All the righteous acts in this whole room was not good enough to get one of us into the presence of holy God because of what God has done to us, how he has rescued us. Orthodoxy, right thinking. Then we respond with orthopraxy, right living. And we no longer conform to this world. And you and I are transformed by the renewal of God working in our mind, our lives, the totality of our being. Well, let's look at a summary statement of the first 11 chapters. It's really in Romans 1.17. It's kind of the linchpin of the gospel. Romans 1.17 says this, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or some of your translations read from first to last, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As you well know, this is one of those verses in history used by God to lead multitudes, multitudes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. One of those individuals is Dr. Martin Luther. Luther understand that Luther is a church insider. We don't have Catholic or Protestant. We have a universal church of which he is a monk, of which he is a priest, of which he is beginning to be a professor of sacred theology at the University of Wittenberg. He's the ultimate church insider. It's the beginning of the 16th century, the 1500s. He's longed to go to Rome. He'll only get there once in his life. This is his one opportunity. And he goes to Rome and his heart is elated to be there. And immediately he sees the seediness, the immorality, the lack of ethics in the city and in the church. And he's deflated. And so he goes to a basilica. Now, a basilica is a certain type of church, it's kind of a leading church. Only major cities in the world have a basilica. You don't get two, you don't get three. If you're a leading city in the world, you get one basilica. That's all you get, unless you're Rome. Then you get four. So they have Paul outside the wall, and Mary Major, and St. Peter's, and the Church of St. John Lateran. That's where Dr. Luther went. And in those days, it's set up a little bit different today. In those days, there was what we call the Salia Sancta, Latin for holy stairs. It was in St. John Lateran. Today, it's across the street in another building. These stairs, 28 stairs, are made of some stone that have historical significance. You remember the first so-called Christian Roman emperor, Constantine, he was not a Christ follower, by the way. All he did was legalize Christianity and give us the Edict of Milan, which allowed churches to have property and people to evangelize. And in fact, he brought forth the Council of Nicaea, but he's not a Christ follower, but his mother, St. Helena, is. And she goes to Jerusalem. To what we call the lithostratos, the stone pavement. Today, it's about 15 feet under Jerusalem. You can stand on some of these stones. And the lithostratos, these stones, are the ones that Pilate beat or had Jesus beaten on while he was tried for crimes he didn't commit, but you did and I did. And some of those stones she brought back to Jerusalem. St. Helena brought them back. And they form 28 steps, the scalia Sancta, the holy stairs. Originally, there were three sets of staircases. Today, there are two. The outside are for people to walk up and down. But the center steps, you are only to go on on your knees. And I can tell you it's incredibly painful. I've done it several times. I'm always behind the most pious pilgrim who just like stays on each step for like 25 minutes. And while you go up these stairs, the 28 stairs, you're supposed to be praying or citing scripture. And Dr. Luther is citing Romans 1.17. The just, the diakosune, the righteous, those who are declared righteous are by faith. That's what the text says. And it is on those stairs that he is born again. He has paid an indulgence, a fee to the church to be on those stairs. Somehow thinking that he had to earn his own salvation. And in those days, if you go up the 28 stairs, each one is worth 15 years off of purgatory. That's 420 years just to go up the stairs, and I'm looking out at you, some of you are gonna be on the stairs a long, long time. (laughs) And he goes up the stairs, he pays an indulgence, and he's born again, as he realizes that he's been trying to earn his salvation, and yet salvation is not earned, it is given. It's like Charles who doesn't earn the throne, it is given. If you believe in Christ, salvation is given. Now, how did he get it wrong? How did so many in the church get this wrong? Well, it really goes back to the first major translation that was authorized by the universal church. It's the Latin Vulgate. The primary translator is St. Jerome, a very serious scholar. And he works on it from 384 to 404. But like any translation going from Greek and Hebrew into a language, this case Latin, there are going to be transmission decisions that are not the best. That's why you have a school of scholars working. And that's what we do on modern translations. We have a wide variety, a school of scholars, but St. Jerome largely worked alone. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem... And you go down into his cave. It's a two-part cave. That's where he translated from Hebrew and Greek into the Latin Vulgate. And he made a profound mistake. He knew that the word righteousness is daikaiasune. Justification, that's the word. And he thought justification, that sounds like justificare in Latin. And so that's what he wrote down. But justificare means to make right. It's a self-work. To make right is for you and I to somehow work hard enough, long enough, to somehow get into the pearly gates. And we know how this works, right? We compare ourselves to somebody who is a little less than, maybe a thug. A Minnesota Viking fan, something like that, and we compare ourselves to someone like that, and we elevate ourselves. But all of our righteous acts—what does the scripture say—are but filthy rags. That's what scripture says. And so, no matter matter how many righteous acts we have, they're filthy rags compared to the overwhelming righteousness of Christ. And so, we have this trans mission, issue. Instead of understanding the Sune means to declare righteous, he writes made righteous. And it has caused confusion ever since. Now understand what happens shortly after we start to go into the dark ages. Then we go into the middle ages. And during those periods of time, Really, nobody is looking back at original languages. They're not looking back at Greek and Hebrew. In fact, most of the known world is illiterate. And then we come to the Age of Enlightenment, and then the Reformation. And with the Reformation, we have someone like Erasmus, the greatest Greek scholar of his day. And he takes a number of Greek texts, and he rolls them into one magnificent Greek text, and all of a sudden, scholars on both sides of the divide realize justification means declared righteous. It doesn't mean made righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous, but it's the imputed righteousness of Christ that is given to us. My friend, you are not righteous, and neither am I. Even if we have accepted Christ, we are still in our fallen state. We are not righteous. That's why we sin. That's why Romans 7 says, I go on sinning. Oh, who will rescue me from this body of sin? But what happens? Although we are not righteous, we are declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ covers us. It imputes the righteousness of Christ on us and so we can stand in the presence of a holy God because Christ's righteousness covers us. And though we've done nothing to earn that righteousness through faith in Christ, faith in the work of Christ, you and I are declared righteous. Listen to Romans 4, 5. It's an incredible verse. This is how we know This is how we know that the Reformation got it right. And to the one who does not work, you don't work for salvation, but believes in him who justifies. Who justifies who? The ungodly. That's us. His faith is counted as righteous. Who does God count as righteous? Righteous the ungodly and the one who doesn't work, but the one who believes in him, in Jesus Christ. That's chapters one to 11 of Romans. That's orthodoxy. That's right thinking. And when we get the orthodoxy right and we understand what Jesus has done for us, then we have the last five chapters, which is orthopraxy in light of chapters 1 to 11, in light of what God has done in our lives, all we can do is respond in an act of worship. Chapter 12, 1 all the way to the end of 16. Let me read chapter 12, 1 and 2. It's kind of the transition piece, going from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. Right thinking to right living. I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore, what do you mean? In light of the first 11 chapters, in light of those, I appeal to you, brothers, sisters, Christ followers, by the mercies of God, that's how we were saved, not works, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's break this down. It says to present our bodies to God. What does that mean? That means in light of being rescued, now I'm going to guard my eyes because that's a right response, a worshipful response to the Lord. In light of being rescued, I'm gonna guard my ears, because that's a worshipful response to what God has done. In light of being rescued, I'm gonna guard where I allow my legs to take me. In light of being rescued, I'm going to guard what I think about, what I meditate on, And it's not just the negative, it's the positive. In light of being rescued, my mouth will sing praises. My mouth will share the gospel, salvation by faith in Christ alone. In light of being rescued, God gets my time, my talents, my treasures. In light of being rescued, I'm not going to conform to this world. I'm going to be transformed by the renewal of my mind because of what Christ has done for me. I'm gonna give you a riddle. I hate riddles. I'm gonna give you a really lousy riddle. I hate it even more, except it speaks some truth to me. It's of a little boy who's talking to his dad, and this is how the riddle goes. He said, Dad, there is a branch over a pond, and on that branch there are three frogs, and one frog decides to jump into the pond. How many frogs are left? And the dad says, well, there's two. And the boy says, try again. There's a branch, three frogs over a pond. One decides to jump in. Dad says, I got it. One frog jumps in, the other two follow. We are followers. No, dad, he only decided he didn't do. I told you, I'm going to torture you with a really bad riddle. But that's me. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's us at New Year's when we make these resolutions and we decide, we decide, but we don't follow through because we don't build accountability into our lives. We don't make it a priority of prayer each and every day. We don't lean upon the brethren, the cistern. We don't find ourselves in the word. And we're not asking the Spirit of God to empower us to make change. We only decide. Paul says what God wants as a response to what God has done through Christ. He wants three things. He wants us to be living, holy, and acceptable. The word living is repetitive. It's present. It's iterative. And he wants us to live for him. You say, well, I do that. I come to church three, all right, two times a month for an hour. That's not living. Living is what's most important in my life. What is most important in my life is what I live for. Is it my wife or my children or my grandchildren? Or maybe you don't have a spouse and you want one. Or maybe you have a spouse and you would rather not. Maybe it's a job or a career that you desire or an income or football or golf or soccer. What do you, what do I really live for? What has been the priority in your life, in my life in 2022? What have we really lived for? For some of you, the answer is Jesus. And that's the right answer. In light of what God has done for us, how he's rescued us as sinners by birth, sinners by action. We haven't added anything. We've just believed in the work of Christ. In light of that, the only answer, the only legitimate answer is we live for Jesus. Second, he says, you're not only living, but you've got to live holy. And we say, whoa, We live in a rather seedy world. We're going to have to go monastery on this one. It's going to be a monk mentality. But no. Let me read to you something I borrowed from Doriani. He's one of my favorite authors. He said, holiness is not separation from the world. But separation in the world. That's rather profound. I wish I had written it. Holiness is not separation from the world, but separation in the world. We're not called to be isolating ourselves from unbelievers. In fact, you and I are called to be salt and light in a world that is lost. We're not called to have an entire life just surrounded by believers and avoiding the rest of the world. We're called to live amongst the world in such a way that they want what we have spiritually. There's an incredible verse. Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. The son of man. It's out of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It's the name of Christ. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus wasn't a glutton nor a drunkard, but he knew a bunch of both. He knows a bunch of both. Now maybe those aren't your sin issues. Maybe it's lust or immorality or a lack of ethics or pride or slander or gossip or anger that's uncontrolled. I don't know what your sin issue, my sin temptations are. But Jesus hung with those kind of people. That's the good news. The bad news is, he doesn't intend to leave any of us where we are. I don't know what 2022 was like spiritually. Maybe 2022 spiritually was magnificent. Maybe you testified to Christ. Maybe you grew in Christ. Maybe, like Jesus, you grew in wisdom and stature. Praise the Lord but it's behind us. What are we gonna do to take the next step in 2023? Maybe, maybe for some of us, we have incredible regrets. Maybe even last night, we have some incredible regrets. Maybe 2022 was spiritually a lost year. You remember what Paul said? I forget what lies behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. Today is a new day. How are you? How am I? How are we going to live for Christ? If we live for Christ well in 22, praise the Lord, but don't rest on laurels. If we messed up big, confess, repent, and ask for the empowerment of God's spirit, and let's make 2023 a year of incredible spiritual growth and service For we are heirs of the king if we know Christ. We're heirs. Living, holy, sacrifice. An acceptable sacrifice. That's what you and I are called to be. An acceptable sacrifice is a sacrifice that Jesus chooses for us to live. I want to give you a little illustration. It's out of the life of Pastor Daniel, not Dan Mack or Dan Shields, neither of our pastors. It's a different Daniel. And Pastor Daniel overheard his wife say to his two daughters, age five and age seven, what should we get daddy for Christmas? And they were all excited and a little too loud. And they said, let's get daddy a Barbie. Yes, daddy wants a Barbie. Now, Pastor Daniel assures us he did not want a Barbie. What was going on? His girls wanted a Barbie. And so they're willing to give a Barbie because that doesn't cost them much. They get what they want. A living sacrifice doesn't get give what doesn't cost much. We're not saying, Lord, I'm going to serve in this way because that's easy for me. That's not expensive. That's convenient. Maybe that even gets me some recognition. A living sacrifice says, Lord, how would you want me to serve? What would you want me to do? How would you like to expend myself as an heir of the kingdom for the kingdom, empowered by your spirit? Lord, what do you want from me? And God says, don't conform. Don't conform. What do you want from me? Don't conform. It's a present passive imperative. Present means iterative. It means repetitive. I gotta stand back. Uh, I was asked to stand back so people don't worry about me falling over. So, I know, getting old. Getting old. Present. It's iterative. Don't conform. That doesn't mean Don't conform today. It means don't conform today and tomorrow and next week and next year. It's present. It's iterative. It's going forward. Lord, I'm tempted. Don't conform, Jeff. Passive. You can't do it on your own, Jeff. The passive is incredible. The passive tells me that I need to be in the word to make this work. I need to be in fellowship with the church to turn from my sin. I need accountability from individuals who will call me out on my sin, who will encourage me to take the next step in my walk with Jesus. The passive, I need prayer. The passive, most of all, I need the spirit of God. It's not me gritting my teeth and saying I can do this on my own. It's a group saying we can do this. We can can make this happen. We'll pray for you. We'll we'll hold you accountable. Do not conform. Imperative. An imperative is not a divine suggestion. It's a divine command. Do not conform, but be transformed. This is an incredible word. We get our English word metamorphosis from it. It only occurs four times in scripture. Just four. Two of those four times, Jesus is on what we now call the Mount of Transfiguration, where he begins to glow like a light stick. His clothes begin to glow, and that's what God is calling us to. I've invited Vanna White to come up (laughs) and to remind us that in 2023, we are called to be a glow stick for Jesus. That's what transformation is. It's not escaping the world. It's being of the world, but not in the world. It's being around the world, but impacting the world. It's being a glow stick. What does transformation look like when someone cuts me off? It's not an extended horn and a flying bird. It's not that when someone is talking about a politician that I agree I don't like her or him. I vote for change, I pray for change, I speak truth. But I don't become angry, bitter, controlled by what's happening around because I belong to another kingdom. Be a glow stick for Jesus. What does God want from you? For me, in light of what he's done for us, Romans 1:11 orthodoxy, he wants orthopraxy, right? living. And he wants us to be glow sticks for Jesus. Glow church. Glow. Let's pray. Father God, uh, It's a lot easier to talk about glowing than to glow. It's a lot easier talking about not conforming than to put the barriers in my life that I do not conform and I begin to be transformed. Father, among us, maybe there's some that don't know Jesus. And may today be the day that by faith They recognize what is true for every one of us. We are sinners lost, rightly damned. And yet because of your love, your son died on the cross, took our sin upon himself, was buried and rose again, conquering the last enemy and offering eternal life for all who believe in your son as Savior and Lord. If someone needs to believe today, By faith, may they believe. Father, some here today have lived godly lives in 2022. Praise you. But may those not rest on the laurels of 2022 and power in 2023 for all of us who know Jesus. Not to conform, but be transformed, to be lights, to be glow sticks in our society, for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.